0: We're willing to do at block apps that probably you see less in the rest of the industry is like figure out how best to play ball with the appropriate authorities that are in charge in each uh jurisdiction. So, like um sanctions compliance, right? Like you have to have that as a use case in mind for the blockchain if you're trying to get it to coexist with the, the legal regime today. So um you know we saw um whatever your uh, your opinion of the uh, treasury sanctions on on uh, tornado cash oh yeah um you know i think sanctions will happen which means the system to some degree has to allow sanctions to happen if it's to stay on the good side of you know the people with the, the power <laughs> you know in, in a sense
1: This episode of untold stories is sponsored by Bing X. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. A lot of the listeners like to know kind of like what's going on right now, what you guys are building. Are you like in the stage where you're launching products? Are you, uh, having products that you're ready to bring to market, but you're kind of waiting for this bear market to end. Um, I'll just get a little bit of introduction and maybe we can kind of jump in with that. Um, Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. What is up? I am your host, Charlie Schramm. and together for almost four years, we've been diving deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, brilliant CEOs, those who are running these amazing projects. Uh, uh, whether they're decentralized DAOs that span you know thousands of miles all across the world, where where the the, the DAO members eat breakfast together every day, even though they're in different time zones, to politicians. To kind of the middle managers, to, to to you and I, just friends who like Bitcoin and crypto. We get people who have been involved since the early days, people who've joined just maybe last week. But there's so much that we've been learning from everyone. Uh, we're gonna really be focusing on where we are right now and how like uh and the cycles, because I'm really a a a person about cycles and I've been in this space such a long time. And my guest actually as well has been in the space a very long time. So We'll be able to talk about uh, forgetting, like putting pricing aside. Someone told me this yesterday. The markets and the investors are very different than the actual products that we're building and the users that are using them. So, my guest today, Kieran James uh, Kieran James Lubin. Thank you so much. You're the founder and president and CEO of Block Apps, an enterprise blockchain platform whose company. Uh, your, your mission is to connect individuals, businesses, and industries through global cooperation and trust. Prior that, to that, you were working uh, uh, on some Ethereum stuff prior to its launch. Um, this helped you develop your, your, one of your flagship products called strato or strato strato strato, which is this really cool uh, architecture for connecting all type of applications across the, the ecosystem. Um, there's so much to start with. We can start with like block apps. We can start with you. Your story is really intriguing. Um. What's what's your like background pre-crypto? What did you do? And then kind of like, what was the, the first time you heard even the word Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything?
0: Yeah, okay, great question. Um, so I'm from New York City uh, and I heard first about crypto probably 2010. Uh, so I was still an undergrad at that time. I studied math. I um, also played football in undergrad, which was oh, like, nice. you know, a little too much in combination, uh, those two things. And I, I, when I really leaned into blockchain, I was in grad school. Actually, also uh, for math, I was in the math department at UC Berkeley. So, but I heard about Bitcoin 2010, thought a little bit of it, didn't think much of it, didn't really understand it at a technical level. Just, but I remember the price being three dollars, and you know, could have yeah. just put a couple hundred bucks into it then, and yeah, you know, oh well. Um, so in grad school i remember the um uh, mount gox kind of price run up that was kind of the first one of the it goes high and then it goes down pretty pretty rapidly um afterwards so i think that was 2013
1: yeah it's it was, a long time
0: now yeah almost 10 years ago um, yeah yeah sure it sure is um And so that got me a little bit interested, but actually the timing was such that, so I passed my qualifying exam, I'm going to say like April, 2014. um, And, you know, qualifying exam is like a three hour oral that, you know, some famous mathematicians and one physicist, you know, stood and asked me questions at at a whiteboard for three hours, a small handful of which I was able to answer, but they, you know, passed me anyway. Uh, And then I, I wanted to take a couple months to work on something different. Um, for a little bit, and it turned out that I would never really return to my PhD after that, but I uh, was lucky enough to get my hands on the Ethereum white paper, um, and that was my first sort of start of technical understanding of what blockchains were, um, and I realized that they were very intricate, having a theoretical math background made it, you know, fairly easy to just sort of wade into the space, and, you know, there was... Um, computer science is only 50 60 years old in a sense um blockchains are much newer than that so it wasn't like there was like years and years of of, of literature to you know have to wade through um and math it takes you know since it's been built up over the centuries takes you a while takes you to grad school to get up to the current state but you know in cs um if you have some background from, from undergrad and in crypto in particular, you can kind of get up to the late, to the state of the art pretty quickly. So I was able to do that and, um, was fortunate to. Is that,
1: is that still till today? I just, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I think think it's
0: changed
1: Yeah, Well, I mean, it depends. So the
0: theoretical underpinnings are not like wildly different than they were, you know, eight, 10 years ago, I guess. Um, but there's such a proliferation of, applications smart contracts all that sort of thing so that part's impossible to track now so big that it's and moving really quickly that you know no one person could know it all but the the theory is still pretty slim in a sense um you know you you could you know uh, i think if you were happen to be an academic cryptographer and you wanted to pick up blockchain it's still like you know a month or two or something to get up up to speed
1: i i think that's that's true for everyone i think there's a there's, it's still, we're still early enough that you could choose to say, you know what, I want to focus and really understand specific type of blockchains, or I want to understand how, you know, how script mining works, or I want to, you know, for Litecoin or whatever, I want to learn, you know, I want to become a master in one niche. You still can, there's still not enough people in the space that you can't be. If someone, if you're hiring and you're interviewing someone And, and yeah, they're, they, they, all your, your core values, they follow, like they, you know, they're not tardy at work. They are available and they communicate even when things are bad, you know, good qualities that we look for, but they're like masters of a very specific section of, of crypto. Is that like a potential good hire for you?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. Let me react to your point. Um, I was talking with uh, some of our, our our two other co-founders, uh, last week, we had a big company meeting on, on Friday and we said to each other, you know, so we really, the company kind of got going in 2015, to the early stages and really formally incorporated 2016, et cetera. And we thought we were early in 20, sorry, we thought we were late in 2014, yeah. <laughs> Um, And that this was all like, you know, everything had shaken out, et cetera. And now it almost feels now like we're earlier <laughs> than we thought we were, you know, in, in, in 2015. So, so yeah, to your point, um, You know, as we hire folks, we are not really looking for uh, crypto or blockchain experience. It can help in certain cases, uh, especially as this industry has gotten more mature. Um, But, you know, what you find is um, lots and lots of people in the space are very young, very smart, um, kind of. Long on crypto knowledge, maybe short on just like general business experience and like operating in a company and and all that sort of thing. So we found it's kind of easier to train the crypto part um, or the blockchain technology part than the other parts. So we don't really um, bias our hiring towards the, the, the sort of within industry
1: experience, if that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, because you need like skills that come from... That's what I keep telling people. If you have skills that you've mastered in other industries, we need you because we're like a brand new one still. Like you said, being late, it's, we're all about cycles. It almost feels like we go back in time every few years, 2016, 2017, we were like forward. Now it feels like where we are in 2023, going into 2023 and almost feels like we're in the days of 2014, where there's almost no clarity to anything. And it's like, if you look at, uh, the industry is bringing a lot of products to the markets, but like yourself, you're focusing on products and services for the rest of the world. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit later about trace harvest, trace carbon, some of the the supply chain problems that you're trying to to fix. But um, go back to the early days, you know, and and uh, uh, pre-block apps with Ethereum. How did you get your spurs? Okay, good question.
0: So um, uh, obviously, so um my father's part of the project um one of the co-founders and so um as i was kind of looking around for something to do that summer he happened to sort of make a introduction and i actually got to talk to vitalik who i, I assume you know i haven't spoken to him in a couple of years um he is probably just way too busy to you know work uh but still he's, he's always had the attitude of like he had something to you know bring to the table like you know come yeah. on in um I remember um so so we met um, we he he visited New York where I was that summer um and basically he he found that my theoretical background was helpful, especially as we were approaching hard technical problems in the blockchain space. at some point he had written a document called like the Ten Hard Problems of cryptocurrency. Yep. I can't quite remember the title um and so you know what I had helped him do and the rest of Ethereum is kind of proxy and talk to academia uh, as you know. Um, there was sort of a maybe a vocabulary gap uh between what the really smart blockchain people were doing and what, you know, some super smart academic people who could probably help were saying that that needed to be addressed at that time. So we put on a conference um in twenty early twenty fifteen called Crypto Economicon that kind of brought together some more academic types, some more business types. Um And some of the hardcore blockchain developer folks and we kind of from this started to realize that there was a really big opportunity and um, again even then the technology was mostly ready at least from you know in concept there there haven't been enormous changes to it you know even the you know before ethereum was was launched the proof of stake roadmap was conceived you know there was a plan right and uh, there was lots to do to execute on that plan. But you could see in that room that this was going to be something kind of um, really big. So so I worked on a, Ethereum, um, most, mostly with Vitalik, um, you know, for a bunch of 2014 into 2015. And that kind of led me to realize that there was a big commercial opportunity. And I guess my personality, also my co-founders, we've always been sort of bridge builders um, where I would say compared to the average blockchain person, I've got a little bit more of a traditional mindset, yeah. you know. Um, and so we thought, okay, let's let's try to um, figure out how to take this technology to businesses. Um, and we imagined that you know through businesses we would get to uh, the mass consumer market, and that a whole lot of challenges had to be addressed um, from usability, but um, you know the way the technology is governed, et cetera, to to make that happen. And of course, that remains true today. And I think. Uh, it has been the case that, of course, businesses um, sitting on top of blockchain platforms have brought the technology to consumers, uh, be those businesses, exchanges, wallets, um, to everything else. Um, but yeah, so we, the I've definitely been surprised by just the amount of focus over the years that. So I sort of thought um, back in twenty fifteen that the, the like price focus of the yeah. industry was going to be ephemeral. Um, and that has ended up being an enduring feature (laughs) more than, uh, uh, much longer than I expected. And, you know, we've gone through waves of it with the the ICO boom and and all that sort of thing. You know, I I mean, on the one hand, these are sort of amazing innovations that are going on. And, but, you know, I think, uh, definitely wasn't the usage pattern we expected at the outset. We sort of thought, okay, people are going to do regular, you know, day-to-day stuff with this. And businesses are going to start to move core operations to blockchain technology, you know, and, you know, take some time. Recently. Don't you think that's like, happening?
1: Yeah. It just takes a lot longer. It certainly longer.
0: is. It just took longer than, than I thought it would. And it, um, you know, the, um, yeah, it's happening. Uh, but so much energy is going into even still, uh, you know, this, this kind of waxes and wanes with the, the sure. prices. So it's a little bit quieter, thankfully at this moment, but, um, so much energy goes into um, tokens, their value, their economic model, and all that sort of thing that it kind of, and and a lot of technical talent is at least pulled in those directions. Like, you know, um, they may not even, you know, explicitly be optimizing for token prices and, and all that sort of thing, but it's like having a stock price. It's like it's there all the time. People are are talking about it, they're thinking about it. And so You don't want to do anything to disrupt your token value if you have one, and this is actually part of the reason we've not released a token at any point. That it just becomes what you're about once you have one.
1: I get it, and and one of the things I, one of the first things I advise many, many, many of our clients that we invest in is don't make your token your product. Don't you know if you're going to launch a token at any point of the life cycle of your business, whether it's like the first day or it's the tenth year. If your token becomes a product and your very talented people are spending their time on legal and token economics and all these different things, then maybe you need to take a step back and figure out what you're doing. Um, I'm seeing, excuse me, I'm seeing like a, a definitely a shift back to like, we're just going to launch a token and let it do what it's, do it, do its thing instead of focusing too much on token economics. I think it's definitely like a hybrid in between. But no one knows the answer to this. And and part of the regulations that come out will probably govern like where companies that go public have like separate, almost like investor relations teams that what they can say, it's it's separate. And maybe that's where this is going.
0: That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I think there's a good analogy with companies that, um, uh, that go public. And to your point, yeah, it's a whole function um, working with uh, investor relations and you know, there's. Um, it used to be pretty easy, relatively speaking, to IPO, and then yeah. it got a whole lot harder. First, with kind of the dot-com bust, and then with um, the uh, 2008 financial crisis, the rules got much more stringent. Where to justify going public, um, except for certain types of companies, maybe biotech companies are different. You need to have like 100 million in revenue, and then because your your costs of being public are going to be like. 5 million a year or something and the exchanges push the minimums pretty high for market caps and all that sort of thing so i actually think there's a gap where it would be nice if kind of main street investors could participate in the growth of let's say tech companies generally they're staying private longer um, because it's a pain (laughs) to be public and this means kind of the returns are going back to people who are um expert and already rich, you know, so I don't so mean to be all placed with this discussion. Sorry,
1: good. No, that's actually a good, a good kind of tangent for a second. I do see a lot of tokenizing of otherwise very illiquid assets. So like mm-hmm. instead of if you're a, if you're a company that makes a lot of revenue, but you're not just like a good candidate to go public, being able to, to tokenize 30% of your, below-the-line revenue or something like that. Uh, I'm seeing, you know, you see INX Group has lo- have launched already six securities tokens. Do you think that's where we're going to go now? Are we going to provide liquidity to otherwise illiquid places? I think so. So this is a big focus of ours.
0: Uh, this is a good segue. So um, in our journey, we first tried to get the software in the hands of the enterprise, working from the kind of platform layer up. and. There were so our platform is kind of based on Ethereum, though so distinct, and we helped found the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance to help kind of standardize any of the additions we made uh, to the protocol. A lot of it was around privacy, so uh, there are big strides going on uh, all over the place in privacy. But kind of the you know the enterprise um, sort of wants almost the opposite privacy model of public blockchains. Um, enterprise wants to know who the counterparty is and then not make the Transaction visible to the whole world, where you know in public yes. blockchains the counterparty is pseudonymous, typically or to some degree pseudonymous, and all of the transactions are visible. So um, while our stuff is all compatible with the kind of normal operation of Ethereum, we also support that second mode of operations. And a lot of the early years of the company were like making it work um, for the enterprise model. What we found in doing that is we unlocked um, you know a variety of use cases in that um, kind of the commonality between them was a focus on real assets um or real products they could be like food products um, so and there where there's a transparency challenge of some kind so uh it could be that you know you've got an illiquid process and that makes settlement slow like um, example near and dear to to me i've experienced this uh, once at this point home buying right yep. like um you have to spend a whole lot of time basically you don't trust the asset so you got to get it like manually and so forget you know the part before the sale um before the offer is made is okay i mean there are big broker fees that they go to folks you know but after it's like it's still like a 60-day settlement because you gotta go get someone to check it out there's bank underwriting there's all this manual stuff that in theory could have been done before um and it hasn't happened yet. And that, you know, all happens after the, the sale is basically agreed to. Um, this means that you know you're taking more financial risk on a home. If we're a little more liquid, if you didn't have you know a 90-day close, if you wanted you, people would probably buy and sell them more. Um, and you'd be, you know, just probably have better functioning uh real estate markets. So we've had a couple of customers that work on different aspects of that use case from fractionalizing you know equity in the home. Yes. Yeah, uh, love that. to yeah. So I think right. So real assets way bigger than um called crypto native assets at this time. Um and I guess land is the biggest, but the real world value of things is something like between five and eight hundred trillion. I don't remember That's exactly. Insane. Yeah. And by, you know it varies by day, but but crypto assets are maybe two, three trillion today, um something like that. Um and so I think this technology, the rubber will really meet the road when we take it to real-world stuff and um, get that to work better at, at scale, and that's it's, it's our mission as well. Um, we're kind of trying to be a bridge between the amazing technical innovation that's happening in the blockchain world and the practical application. Um, and. So, so what's been interesting as far from a use case perspective is, in theory, you could do everything, right? Yeah. In theory, you could be trading public equities, you know, on blockchains. You know, there's there are huge volumes of that, but there isn't much need there, at least at this time, in the sense that a lot of those markets that effectively no fee, there might be you know fees hidden in um, market spreads and and that sort of thing. The volumes are huge, you know. The settlement is like a couple of days, but it's you know it's not like ninety days, yeah. right? So. Whereas if you go through a uh, venture financing, another near and dear example, right? Like the time between everything is in principle agreed and like getting the money can be like 45, 60, 90 days. Sure. There's all these, you know, check boxes that need to happen. And I, you know, lawyers, whenever you got lots of lawyers like negotiating contracts, it's an indication that, you know, maybe the market works, but it's it's not as efficient as it could be. Um so absolutely. Um we're big focus for us, um, and I think everyone else is um. Illiquid assets um but illiquid assets where there's a kind of a transparency cost where where you've got a bunch of people going in and appraising and you've got brokers and escrow agents and you know all that that sort of thing that are making the other parties get comfortable to do the transaction that's an, that's an like interesting basically point. what they do yeah.
1: so if you have there like you. an inspection company that's covering like half of a state, there's like a huge inspection company here in Florida if this inspection company starts issuing their inspections as almost like an NFT that's associated with the home, then at least five years down the road, now you're building like history. We're building a blockchain. You know, like blockchains, it almost goes back to the trilemma of decentralization. You can't just like launch a blockchain and be decentralized and distributed and secure on day one. It takes time. So, Potentially it takes a road, even Ethereum. It took years, right to prove out its immutability. It's, it's Bitcoin, too. People realize, don't realize that Bitcoin had hard forks in the early days. It had problems. It almost crashed twice. Satoshi had to stop the network and it fix it. It was a whole thing back in 2010. I don't, I don't wish to go back to those days sometimes. It was scary. But when it comes to these type of uh, real world examples, we have to just start because it's going to take a, a time. It's going to take like you said with uh you're seeing it with with supply chain things with different luxury items you're seeing it with bananas we're seeing it with bottles of wine i was in a winery that had like a million bottles in a basement and they're like every single bottle now exists on a blockchain a private one that we're experimenting with i'm like how cool is that i didn't even come here for that came here to drink the wine it's like it's happening very slowly
0: yeah and and the thing is um a lot of that um one of the, one of the other problems we are we're trying to solve so in the early days of the block apps business we would give let's say some giant company and its suppliers like its own blockchain because that's what people really wanted that they were used to adopting technology sure. in um in a manner that they were accustomed to. So, they, you know, we manage our own databases. Why would we not manage our own blockchain? It was sort of the, the attitude at the time. And there was something to be learned from that. You know, I think um, they mostly, you know, big companies uh, in particular, still just largely don't use public blockchains. There are a couple of cases that are coming up now. It's getting more accepted. But, you know, sometimes you have to meet people um, where they are. Sure. And this worked well. But what you find is that it has some governance challenges, basically, so that um you know parties competitors don't want to join each other's competitive blockchain and it's just it's difficult to scale it's hard for one company to say hey get on this it system that you know i'm going to require to use you see some of it you see like you know the walmart example but as far as i can tell that you know in the end maybe didn't have as much legs as uh uh, lots of parties hoped uh we've we've seen um in our business as well, the, the ability of whales, so to speak, to influence the value chain is significant, but limited, right? And so uh, we started to move everything to a setup that looks, uh, I guess I would call it public permission. So um, where basically you don't have um, really heavy influence by, by single players. Um, we also, we work with some of the larger blockchain consortia, like the Blockchain for Energy Consortium is... It's got ExxonMobil, Chevron, Schlumberger, et cetera. And that model is kind of closer to the long-term vision. But I really think these systems need to be pretty participatory. So so to your point, um, as you're working out the use case, you know, private blockchain, uh, totally private, makes sense. But at some point, you need to know where those bottles of wines go, especially if you were, say, a wine collector and you're yeah. not going to drink it. And you might, you might even leave it with the... Um, Company who sold the wine to you because they can store it better, and then you know five ten years from now, if it was a really good vintage you you might turn around and sell it um to a party that they're not aware of and you know so in an ideal world, everyone is on the same chain already yeah. um so that there just aren't kind of liquidity limitations or missing people um from the loop, and so you know I think something what we're working on um, and we've just announced um a, our public permission blockchain it's been announced about a month ago, uh, which is called platforms called Strato. The network's called Mercata, so Strato Mercata. Uh, it aims to kind of close the two gaps where there's a whole lot of real world business activity happening on permission blockchains where again, people have valuable bottles of wine. People are settling invoices sure. uh, with their with their suppliers, et cetera. And we're trying to kind of bring it all together under one roof so that all of the trade can flow smoothly while still protecting the um, the privacy that the enterprises are really concerned about. Most likely, it's on a permission chain because they said, well, we don't want our wine pricing yeah. leaking out. We don't want people to know where the inventories are, like we don't want put on theft, all that sort of thing. So you need those data protections, too. But you also need the scale and the standardization that uh, public blockchains can offer. Anyway, you- sorry, riffing on your, your point. No, there. I was
1: just... It's funny how like your, your answers lead me to more questions and is it just, and kind of like what I'm thinking and what a lot of people are probably thinking, is it, is it that you have all these competitors and counterparties and different people in a supply chain that are almost in competition with each other and want to protect secrets and data and information. Is it just that this blockchain now has become this technology That you don't have to trust the counterparty that owns and operates it 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 you know blockchains kind of because they they're run by all of the validators and nodes in a very decentralized way all of these different participants now can say okay we're ready to open up and participate because it's on a blockchain it's definitely
0: part of it it's the trust it's also so i mean a lot of if you've got um you know heavy manufacturing industries uh they tend to have automated some of the communication between them and their suppliers and their key customers. Right. So they might have EDI systems that say, all right, you know, here's a purchase order, make the shipment, here's the shipment, you know, so they've got some ability to message each other already in an automated manner. Um, But that it hasn't really scaled. And my, it doesn't scale between, you know, you know, company one to company two to company three, it really just goes company one to company two. And then when you get ten companies down the line, you can't do that many technical integrations, right? It, it's you're you're thinking about hooking, you know, an ERP, some kind of financial and manufacturing kind of accounting system into a messaging system. And if you do it point to point, it's it's just impossible. You're only going to do that for your really big customers, your really big suppliers. What the blockchain system presents is yes, it's neutral, and so you feel much better about. Entrusting data to it uh, as compared to um, some SaaS company, uh, some clearinghouse, or you know directly to one of your competitors, um, then you do, you know. Um, so so that that part is part of it, but it's also the scaling the standardization because it's a participatory system. Um, let me take a step back. So, so the messaging standards between companies have either usually been set by committee on the one hand. So like there, there's an EDI standard that some you know folks contribute to. It's, it's kind of a slow process. And so if you need something above and beyond what's in that standard, your choices, which are like to make it custom. So it's not going to scale or to wait for that uh, to be incorporated. It's so funny. Um, what, um, or the standards are just set. So in like the financial industry, um, you know, there Swift publishes, in effect, an EDI standard, um, which is a bunch of messages that you can send to Swift, and they change that on their pace. So they're both setting the standard, and they're the tech company who facilitates um, that activity from happening. The blockchain path allows you to extend it um, more easily um, and achieve standardization at the same time. Basically, because everyone is working on the same smart contracts, if you're you know using those. Um, and so, a data standard representing, you know, I don't know, shipment of drills could be created by one company and then used by all the others. And if there's not a lot of proprietary advantage in, you know, your data standard for for drill shipping. Um, that means that instead of just one automated integration on the value chain, everyone can see um, in the future what the data should look like, and so it allows uh, scaling up of traceability. Uh, as it flows across, you know, trade that you just didn't see with other technologies.
1: Guys, hot off the press, we've just negotiated with our epic new sponsor, Bing X, over $155 in free new user rewards for each of you. Just check them out and click the link below. And I'll explain to you who these guys are and why they're offering such an, an amazing award to our Untold Stories listeners. X is a really cool crypto social trading exchange. They offer the usual like futures, spot, derivatives, all the good stuff that you guys like to do, all the cryptos and all the different coins that you want to buy, but they also offer a really cool copy trading service. And then you can see all their traders over the past few years, how they've performed, and you can simply copy their trading. They have over 3 million users, regulatory licenses in the Can, in Canada, USA, over in Europe, for- through Lithuania, Australia. They got one of the best ratings by 30K. So you know they're legitimate and they're gonna be uh, helping us out and offering you guys this amazing deal Listen, if you click the link below, uh, there's a new user reward and an extra on top special link bonus. You're going to get $155 in USDT. The link has everything in there and they're even capping your losses up to $10. If you go in there and try to play around with the copy trading bingx.com thank you guys so much for sponsoring us i'm excited to send some more videos and update you guys on their platform it really looks nice it's comfortable to use you feel safe and secure you get 150 dollars 155 for free so why not go check it out bingx thank you guys you know we read the news every day and we're watching like a lot of political uh tension build up right between China the US Russia Ukraine India you know some of the the G7 countries all over the world um out, you know lines are being drawn but when i go to sleep at night i think about trade and i think about how money at the end of the day money and capitalism as much as these half these countries are communist or you know pseudo communist socialist whatever i know at the end of the day like the ability to 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 have like a healthy uh economy and constantly bringing people out of poverty is why those dictators have power, right, for example. So what make, helps me sleep at night is knowing that our trade routes are so integrated and we're so globalized that there's almost a constant disincentive for attention. Uh And you, you see that in a lot of like, constantly the conversation is about economic sanctions. And then you see like, okay, we're going to sanction Russia, but we need to make a loophole in order for them to sell gas to Germany or like we're seeing this all the time to India or example, is it, is it too like, Oh, it blockchain is going to solve world peace. Is it too like far out for me to really ask you if you think that this technology is actually furthering the integration of all of our trading around the world?
0: Uh, it's a good question. So we have dealt with uh, some international trade within the company and, um, Without going to a lot of the details, part of the goal um, is to just ensure compliance and actually prevent things that are not approved to go to a certain place from going to that place. Ah, sometimes it happens uh, um, by accident. So it's early, definitely. And I think, um, you know, I mean... We more or less have one internet. You've got, you know, great firewalls and all that sort of thing. So I think uh and, and similarly public blockchains function pretty well um across borders. I do think what we're gonna need, and I don't know exactly how it'll shake out, one thing we're willing to do at block apps that probably you see less in the rest of the industry is like figure out how best to play ball with the appropriate authorities that are in charge <laughs> in yeah. each uh jurisdiction. So like um, sanctions compliance, right, like you have to have that as a use case in mind for the blockchain if you're trying to get it to coexist with the the legal regime today, so um, you know, we saw um, whatever uh, your opinion of the uh, treasury sanctions on on uh, tornado cash oh yeah, um, you know, I think sanctions will happen, which means the system to some degree has to allow sanctions to happen if it's to stay on the good side of, you know, the people with the, the power, you know, in, in a sense. And I think, uh, you know, early blockchain people um, were, you know, very much opposed to that kind of thinking. And I think it's changing, right? I think, you know, we, we realize it's a technology, it could be used for um, all manner of purposes, and uh, that to we have a better shot at omnipresence if we kind of make sure to work well with um the appropriate um regulatory law enforcement you know etc yeah. uh, of course some regulations make blockchain harder uh, which is a shame and i hope we can have like an open dialogue on that like um, going back to your example of you know issuing private securities there there's sometimes even if you're to issue a security on the blockchain you there's for a private company to tend to be a capped number of investors in that private yeah. company so you know I think there like were six thousand participants yeah. in the Ethereum launch, and right, that would have been prevented by that rule if you treated it as a private security, even if you, you know, checked that everyone was accredited and all that. Sort of thing. Interesting. So, um, so there are challenges there. There's there's rules that probably could be updated uh, without you know, hurting consumer protection or all that that sort of thing. But um, it's for the technology to be realistic. You've got to work well with law enforcement. You know, respect national sovereignty coexist with fiat currency you know assets which people still want to pay in fiat most of the time you know uh that may change but hasn't yet um and so going back to your point i think it'll help i think it'll streamline um a lot of the there is still some friction in trade yeah. out there so but much I, so that we have sorry good good
1: go no you finish you finish
0: yeah we a lot of uh, friction there's a lot of friction in trade be, in and um so, uh, there, so much so that there are um, pretty big businesses for banks to help facilitate cross-border trade, um, and they tend to be really large trades. But basically, if you, um, I'm going to explain the um, you know, cross-border trade finance use case. But like, if you're you're a big manufacturing company and some company in you know Sri Lanka that you don't know wants to buy a whole lot of your let's go drills again, um, you may not be able to assess their credit worthiness. Are they really going to pay you when you deliver the drills? And so on your side and on the other side, you kind of let the banks extend uh, credit to make that transaction happen. Um, Interesting. And, you know, it's it's a complicated process that I don't really understand. But um, I think it's possible to heavily trust in a system as opposed to kind of more of a real world calling and sending documents and uh, underwriting process. And that could lower the barrier to entry for trade finance. So for trade finance, people are looking at usually like, it's only worth it to the banks to do this if you've got five, 10, 20, $500 million trades happening uh, that they charge a big fee on. Because there's a lot of paperwork and and all that sort of thing. If you can make it more automated, you could do more trades and lower the barrier to entry to smaller companies that um, might only have, you know, $200,000 $200,000 orders as opposed to $5 million orders. And that would, so, so there'd be more cross-border trade tends to mean to your point, less likelihood of, um, yeah. uh, global conflict. So I'm, I'm hopeful on that, but it's, you know, it's a tool. It's like, it's a tool and it can actually be used to be, um, more effective at working with the current regime, driving out costs, creating whole net new opportunities. Uh, but also, you know, helping with the compliance with the law that's so complicated uh, internationally and, and always changing.
1: It's so interesting, actually, because you said, like, it's crazy that we ended up with one internet, right? And, like, going going back when the internet really flourished, going through its mass adoption stages, we weren't living in a super-globalized world back then. In fact, it was the opposite. How the hell did we end up with only one internet? Oh,
0: uh, yeah. That's a great Well, yeah. It's a, like a situation-y. theoretical question. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah. Even... <laughs> Um, It's strong... At... So it's a network of networks, right? Like uh, every enterprise has its walled garden internal uh, network, which is totally necessary and great. Um, but thankfully, they were kind of all forced to interoperate with each other, I think just due to convenience, basically. Like, um, Interesting. I, I, so I don't cool. really, I'm, I'm young enough to barely have a memory of this, but I think at one point people were really worried that AOL, we need to trust bust AOL. This is a walled garden yeah, proprietary that. internet and you know and then like three years later it was just like irrelevant (laughs) because people figured out the the lowest friction path is a system that's pretty open now it's not like there's a sense in which the internet is less open um than blockchain technology right like you did real world you know every everyone has uses https you know chrome forces you to, right so someone on your website you know or you don't get the lockbox has done a check that you're a real world entity and you've registered etc i think this is in at least to a certain extent probably a good thing i think yeah. like a lot of bad is eliminated by that and the downsides are pretty minimal it's like you know you have to, you have, to have a company or you put it in your personal name and you pay a couple hundred bucks like and you know i don't think there's anything in the early blockchain days people thought like domain registrars were evil and it's
1: like Nah, really? They're, they're doing something.
0: I think so. I, yeah, I,
1: I heard that. Like yeah, I remember that? growing up like the bad big bad DNS or whatever. Yeah. Like GoDaddy was the reason GoDaddy was got so successful is that they came off as like the friendly, easy to use one when the rest of them were very like tech heavy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in any case, so I think um just watching the space. There's a lot that's going on in the public blockchain world that is totally net new and amazing technical innovation, but also we're going to end up needing to take current real world practices in a whole lot of areas um, for security, for risk controls, for compliance, etc., to make blockchains work well with the legal system and kind of merge the two basically. And it's a lot of what we do at Block Apps. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm seeing general awareness of this idea kind of pop sure. up in the space, but it's still early on it. And I think, uh, to your point, as you start to deal with real physical stuff, um, you, you know, code as is law is, doesn't apply as much anymore. Like There is governing law for how you sell a home to someone that the blockchain has to respect if you're going to make that transaction happen on the blockchain. Um, but I think that's where the big opportunity is. So that's, that's a lot of what we're working on.
1: I appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on the show today and, and talking to us about it. Um, how can my listeners follow up and, and follow you?
0: Yeah, uh, great question. So um, websites, net. I'm reasonably active on LinkedIn. Also, you can just kind of um, search my name. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to do more, you know, be in, in the public, do a little bit more blogging and, and all that sort of thing as the, uh, in the next year or so. so um, LinkedIn came I back. Will, uh,
1: I don't know how yeah, they yeah. did it. It came back. I thought it was hanging on by a thread, but I've been using it more lately too.
0: Yeah. It's not bad. It's, it seems, you know, maybe it's because it's about businesses. and You know, social networks, despite having really strong network effects, they seem to go out of favor every five, 10 years. But LinkedIn seems enduring, at least for the time being.
1: Yeah. Everyone thought yeah. business was boring. And so no one really tried to go after the LinkedIn model, but they just kept at it. Exactly. And, like focused on one thing and did it really well. And it just goes to show you, It's really great. Anyways, Karen, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me. Have a great day.